There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is powered by Podcast Network Asia. For more information on the shows and the network, visit podcastnetwork.asia and Podmetrics, the only analytics you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up for free at podmetrics.co and use my referral code RJ Ledesma. Like difficult times give rise to innovation, but that means is it's really time to build whatever idea you have, whatever resources uh, or limited ones that you have right now. You know, they're like just um, pure passion and just relentless pursuit for you know continuous change will allow you to you know build that thing that will eventually. Know, bring you somewhere, right? And I tell this because you know, I, I grew up less privileged, and and the mindset that my parents really like brought me up was the idea that whatever resources we have, just take advantage of it, and you know, keep continue learning and learning. And good evening, welcome to the RJ Ledesma podcast. In the RJ Ledesma podcast, I interview the country's pioneering business personalities and entrepreneurs. To learn more about how they think about business, what are their success secrets, and how they have innovated their businesses during this pandemic. Right now, if you've got any business personality or entrepreneur that you would like me to interview on the podcast, please let me know. Drop me a message. Also, glad to let you know that we are also live on Kumu right now. So, kumusta sa lahat ng mga kaibigan mula sa Kumu. Thanks so much for listening. This week, this week we talked to our good friends from Paymongo. I sit down right now with fellow alumni of uh, fellow alumnus of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Francis Plaza. He is the co-founder and CEO of PayMongo. PayMongo is an online payments processing startup that has recently raised 580 million pesos. Can I just say that one more time? That's 580 million pesos, or 12 million US dollars. For their Series A financing round from foreign investors like Stripe, which is a startup enabler, alongside Silicon Valley funders like Y Combinator, Global Founders Capital, and Bedrock Capital. Now, I'm sure many of these terms are flying over the heads of some of the listeners right now. What is Series A? What is Stripe all about? What is Y Combinator? Don't worry, Francis will tell us more about this. At the same time, let's find out how this proudly Philippine-based fintech startup plans to build the best payment experiences for local businesses on this episode of the RJ Ledesma podcast. And again, Francis, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks, RJ. Thanks for having me. It's always glad to be a guest in any of your shows. <laughs> I, I really, really appreciate you coming over here. And if you guys have any questions for Francis, please feel free to chat us up in the chat box. We'd love to address some of your comments here today. Uy, mga taga-Paymongo, mamati naman kayo dyan. Mga taga-Paymongo, mga MIT Club of the Philippines listening to us here right now. Say hi to your two alums here on the show. So before we start, no, I actually met Francis a couple of years ago, even before Paymongo was started up. And mm-hmm. Francis was part, we're both part of the MIT Club 
uh, of the Philippines, and uh, mm-hmm. he's he's an alumnus as well. I I am an alumnus, but uh, many many generations prior to Francis actually starting off in MIT. So before that one, no, people have got some great MIT stories. I want to know how did you make your way to MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts? Did you do your high school over here, Francis? Yes, I did, and uh, it was an interesting journey. I would say it was totally unplanned. I never thought of even leaving my hometown to go to college at all. The most that like, I dreamed uh, when I was growing up was to move to Manila and you know, go to the top schools, which I did apply when I was in high school. Uh, so I, I went to high school in Leyte, in Philippine Science High School there. So you're Pisay? Uh, yes, yeah, I'm a proud science person, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, so I, I went to school there. And uh, two months before the college application deadline, it was, you know, it was just randomly Googling and said, I wanted I wanted to go to Harvard. That's the only brand name school that I knew at that time. It was, you know, I was this little kid in, in Leyte, not knowing anything about the world. So I was Googling and there was this school two miles down south, right, in Cambridge. I'm sure you know that area. I was like, there's the Institute of Technology. Uh, so I got curious what that school was about. And there's like all tech and all lab. And, and as a science kid, I was like, whoa, this is the school I want to be in. So I told my mom, I asked for, you know, for us, that was a significant amount of money for like 20,000 pesos to do my SATs and all that. And yeah, so randomly applied to MIT and I guess the rest was history. Uh, and yeah, flew from late and straight to Cambridge. And yeah, we're wow. still But yeah. I'm sure you applied for like UP, Ateneo, Rasal, mm-hmm. you applied for, for all the schools, but then you went, you went to Cambridge. So tell me a bit more about that one. That might have, that must have blown your mind. I mean, you were somebody from, from the province applying there. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you guys also end up uh, taking care of the... I mean, I hope you don't mind. How about the tuition, the tuition fee? I mean, to anybody, mm-hmm. that, that's astronomical. How, how was that taken care of? Yeah, no, I mean, as you all know, U.S. education is super expensive. Maybe the most expensive in the world. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from uh, the Jamil Foundation. They actually run a lot of initiatives for the less privileged, I guess, the, the less represented you know, students. So I was lucky to get a a scholarship there, which turned out to be, which, you know, going to the school in the U.S. turned out to be a lot cheaper had I gone to even uh, going to UP. So uh, it was trivial for my parents. They didn't know what MIT was. Uh, They realized after I graduated. But yeah, it was uh, everything lined up. Yeah. Wow. So that that's incredible, and I mean the 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 enormity of what you did. They, they didn't even your your parents even didn't realize it yourself. You were telling me even that uh, this is the interesting story that you were at the top of your class in Pisay later. You weren't even top. You weren't even top ten. But what was your story? How did you get it? Because oftentimes the school looks for what is the story of why we should accept you. Right. Yeah. So I was, I guess. Well, my family background. I'm. I was the first one in my family to go to college. So my parents never graduated college. They started a family early. My father was a security guard. My mom is a housewife trying to yeah, get by in a day-to-day. And, but the way they raised me, I, was, I, I wasn't really pressured as a kid to get good grades. It was everything I did growing up was mostly out of interest. And you know, when I went to Pisay, I had a knack for science and engineering, but it wasn't primarily because of the grades I wanted to get in school. So I wasn't getting like, you know, stellar grades. Probably I was probably like in the U.S. grading system, probably like a B or a B minus kind of oh. a kid. But I was, I was super interested in robotics at that time, you know, like Lego, uh, Mindstorm and things like those. And 
I was like having fun with my friends and I felt na learning software was a way for me to connect with them. So I was building um, game servers. I was at the time Ragnarok was the most popular well the, uh, online game and the, and so I was I was teaching myself how to code so that I could build my own server so that I could impress my friends. It was my way to socialize. Jensalite, um, Jensalite. In yes. And I had like I, I never grew up with a computer, so I would spend like hours in internet cafes trying to, you know, go on like open source websites reading reading code. Um, so that's how I learned how to code and that's how I started falling in love with software. I was around I think I was like nine or ten years old at the time and really spent a lot of my free time just trying to build whatever interested me at that point. I guess that was the selling point to MIT. I mean, I, I could never really know what was that, that thing. But I told them the story of this kid who was who really had no resources trying to build all these, you know, little inventions I had during high school. Um, so I guess that was that was the selling point. Yeah. What does that I, I'm just curious, what is that what does that key invention that you made that, you know, what is that one robotic achievement that you had when you were in yeah. high school? Yeah, no, the the one thing that I guess one major um invention, uh, which you know, which really amazed a lot of my friends was this was 2008, just to put things in perspective, which <laughs> I guess, you know, in this day and age is no longer amazing. But at the time, we were, uh, we were a text capital, right? I mean, I think we still are. But like at the time, without internet, like people were texting and texting. Mm-hmm. So I created this device where you could practically control your electronic devices using SMS. So I, I demoed with my teachers where I was controlling the lights of the school using my phone. So I would send a text, na, you know, room one on, and then the light would turn on. And they were like, oh, that's a, that's a great invention. I mean, in this day and age, you could control everything with, with your phone. But, you know, that was 2008, where I had like a small 3310 phone. So, you know, those things, uh, which wasn't, you know, I didn't do it for the grades, but for the, I guess, the you know, the amazing thing you can do with software. That was sort of the, the selling point, yeah. And that sort of informed your whole tech entrepreneur journey heading <laughs> off to MIT. Now, just tell me how it, how it was like. I mean, for me, no, uh, when I was younger, we had the privilege of going to the States for, for mm-hmm. vacations and, and visiting all these different schools. And, you know, when, when I got into MIT for mine and I was doing grad school, not even undergrad, grad school, mm-hmm. it was quite a culture shock for me because, mm-hmm. you know, all the notions that you had of the U.S. come from whatever you see in the movies <laughs> about school and you know, things are so different. What was what was the thing for you? What was the biggest, you know, culture shock for you when you when you first got there? Because taga kuma galing sa probinsya, biglang nag US. I mean, must have been like wow when you first got there. No, that's uh, so true. I mean, that was my first trip abroad. That was my first time even like getting a passport because I really had no reason to do so before that. And I was 16 at the time, so I had to travel alone because my parents couldn't afford to go to the US. And uh, you know, I, I remember that I was 2009. Uh, it was a Delta flight going to Detroit and then Boston. It all like I thought I knew, you know, the U.S. You know, with watching all those movies, like you know, thinking about it, like New York or L.A. Oh. or San Francisco. <laughs> but getting there, and you know, I had some English knowledge, you know, with Pisay and all that. But you know, more than language barrier, which you know, there's still a barrier with English, given you know, American humor and how do you communicate with oh, with them. Yeah socially and culturally, it was a total shock because I I was 16. My peers were around 18, 19 years old. And I had no support group because like, I had no family in Massachusetts. So 
I actually had a lot of trouble with my first semester. I, I did fail some classes. And good thing MIT has this pass no record policy because they know how hard it is to survive uh, in the in the in the institute. And so like my first semester fa- failures does not appear in my record to give me, you know, sort of a second chance. But it was really a hard uh, journey academically, but also culturally and socially. Like I, I think you probably would know, but you know, the the support group of the school and, and all the resources to really provide you is amazing. And I, I would credit to that how I survived and adjusted pretty well. Wow. And, and you, you pursued, what degree did you pursue in MIT? Uh, so I did computer science as my major, and I also did economics as my minor. So sort of like a bit of business and a bit of tech. Yeah. And, you know, kudos to MIT. They train you to be a really holistic tech person. So like you have a strong engineering background, but they ground it to, you know, like thinking about how your skills, how your science engineering skill can actually impact the world. So that's, uh, you know, that really puts a lot of things in perspective. Wow. That must have been a very, you know, a life-changing four-year mm-hmm. journey for you. Mm-hmm. Now, by the time you were done, no, I mean, the, the option for many Pinoys, especially if you've gone abroad for that time, mm-hmm. is to actually live in the States after you, you go there and, and maybe stay there for good mm-hmm. or maybe after 10 years, you stay there, then you come back. But, but you, uh, what appears to me is that you chose to go home right after. Tell me a bit more about that decision of yours. What, 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 what informed your decision? Yeah, you know, spending that four years in Cambridge, it, my plan really was, you know, get a good computer science degree, apply for a job at Google or Facebook or you know, Apple and those big, amazing companies, spend five years in one of those, you know, earn a high-paying salary and eventually buy a house in Palo Alto and live the American dream forever. <laughs> Yeah, that was like, you know, my vision of the future when I was, uh, you know, freshman year, sophomore year. And I really like worked hard towards that. My parents, given that none of them really went to college, parang, like that's the, that's their definition of an achievement. So I did like set my eyes towards that. But towards the end of my, my senior year, that was when I actually started getting into you know, not only building uh, software, but also like, how do you actually productize it? How do you sell it? And not, not entirely just in school, but also with my peers and my friends. Um, and I, I still ended up working in the States for around a year. That was during my one-year OPT. So I worked mm-hmm. as a software engineer for Oracle. They were about to sponsor me. And there, there was some lottery thing and all that. And it was a really complex immigration issue. And while I, I planned to stay, I guess in hindsight, a blessing in disguise, all those immigration complexities sort of like, you know, I lost hope, I guess, like that I could still go and navigate through all that, all those things. So I made a decision and I told my manager at Oracle that, you know, I, I would quit and eventually decide, you know, to venture back. So I, I did sort of like take the leap and I didn't even know what I was going to do. So I, I did, I did end up doing different things in the Philippines. I found myself in Europe actually in, in the middle before actually fully telling myself that I'm I'm coming back. And that was, that was 2017. So been here three years now. Three years now. Okay. Now this is the interesting part from between that time to actually putting this up. I'm sure that combined with your, your own experience of the Philippines mm-hmm. and what you learned in the States, a lot of different pain points and opportunities cropped up for you. What mm-hmm. eventually landed you here? Tell me, tell me about that journey. And that's, that's what I'm curious about. What brought your journey 
from coming home up to putting up your app, which is which is PayMongo. Yeah, so I, I first came back to Manila, 2014. I had a different startup at that time. So this this was born out of my college thesis. So my college thesis was around, from, from a technical point of view, it was how do you connect network of people to optimize logistics, which in application turned out to be a marketplace for mules. Basically, how do you now... Uh, use uh, people to transport goods. So essentially, like you know, an <laughs> online mule platform. So okay, that, that okay. was that was the first startup I ever built. What, um, what was the name of the app? What was the name? What was the name of the startup? It was called Mover. So it was like an Uber with an M <laughs> at the beginning. Oh, okay, Mover. Um, Mover. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So we did that for uh, me and my friends, and uh, we did that for about two years. Uh, like without funding at all, I was bootstrapping it with my salary from Oracle. And that was my first, I guess, intro to startup, but also to the Philippine um, startup community. So we built that in the U.S., moved it here. And uh, it was bas- the idea was basically taking advantage of OFWs going home, using space in their luggage, pay them a fee so that you could move expensive items, okay. I guess. That sort of the customs would probably hate it, but but that was like the idea. It never gained traction primarily because we weren't able to uh, execute this, it well. Um, there were other similar companies that made it. I think it was still a, it's a, still a great idea. Um, it's more of a matter of execution. But but in any case, that was my first intro. Tried it out here, 2014, 2015, and eventually I, I was I guess too young to navigate through all the complexities and i was 21 22 at that time and eventually gave up and i thought at that time like okay i have i have no place in the philippines so i said okay maybe i I, maybe the right way was to join a startup somewhere else i know i couldn't go back to the u.s because all all of the immigration issues i met a team uh, in amsterdam so i moved to europe actually in, in 2016 I lived in Amsterdam. That's where I had the time of my life with all you know, all the fun things there. And that's where I spent a year working with a Y Combinator company. So y that's Combinator. how. I, okay. Yes. What for people who don't know what Y Combinator is and why it's important to the whole global startup community? What is Y Combinator? Yeah. So Y Combinator, they're a uh, I would say they're the most prestigious startup accelerator. They were started in uh, actually in the campus of MIT uh, about. 15 years ago, 2005, eventually moved to Silicon Valley. And their their premise is they want to lower the barrier to entry for entrepreneurs by giving them access to resources and initial funding. So they they accept like really, really early stage companies into the program, even like idea stage. And they help you grow that and accelerate in three months and eventually raise money. So, that, so that's sort of like what we went through. And um, so ma- many uh, big companies went through the the program like Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, many others, uh, DoorDash, Instacart, like big billion dollar companies in the US have gone through the program. So that's how they, they built their prestige. And then so you were in Y Combinator out of Amsterdam. So they had like a branch in Amsterdam, is that right? No. So I worked for a company that went through the program. I see. Uh, so okay. company went through the program. I lived in Amsterdam. And that's sort of, I guess that was my full crash course to how a fast growing company is built. So we were a small team. I joined as employee number 12, I think. And then we, we eventually became 30 when you know, I was there for like just two months. And really, I saw firsthand how growth is essential for any startup, how relentless, like relentless pursuit to like just building and building was, 
to ski and and so I spent 2016 in Amsterdam and uh, as you probably recall you know that, that's an election year for both the Philippines and the US so in the, in the back of my head I was following the the news and eventually towards the end of 2016 with my experience in tech and 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 also my interest in politics I guess I was naive enough to think that we could we could make a difference in politics using technology and that was you know the big philosophical questions then was you know did did facebook influence the election or how how can social media change your biases and all those things so like the great talk if you watch the great talk that's sort of like a summary of what you were thinking right yes so those are like the big questions at the time and eventually i decided okay the philippines was an experiment for you know the likes of facebook how you know our elections you know change everything so I, i came back in with that idea of now, what if we build a social uh, analytics platform that's geared for for elections, for analyzing how behaviors change? Like I came back fully to the Philippines in 2017 in January, and that's that's sort of my first try of going back and really now, you know, what eventually became. Really planting, uh, really planting your feet in the ground here in the Philippines. Exactly. Yeah. Before we talk about that story, I want to go back a bit more to what you learned in Amsterdam. You said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was your first time to see how a startup relentlessly grows. And for many people here right now who are trying to grow their own startups here locally, mm-hmm. what were the key takeaways that you picked up from, from what's, the, what's the name of the company in Amsterdam, if you don't mind me yeah. asking? It's called Embrace. So they're now a large company in Europe. They yeah. do HR uh, platform. HR platform. So mm-hmm. what were the key takeaways that you, you got from them that you've been able to reapply the development of Paymongo, which you think would be also be beneficial to the other people doing startup work here in the country? Yeah, um, so like a lot, I would say like the key takeaway points were one, we were a small team. I, I was employee number 12. Our engineering team was really small. I was probably the only one doing our like, you know, core backend infrastructure. And then it, it had like two other teammates. But we were building a software that, you know, big billion dollar companies were using. So we were, we were building a company that big companies use. So you can imagine like the demand and the continuous you know feature requests like it's we were drowning with things to do. So building a fast growth startup was it's really all about how do you how do you build products that your users will continue to you know like and want essentially because your business depends on them and if you don't basically build those in a rather fast way you know they, they can always choose some you know someone else so that that was sort of the mode of our ceo we were a small team i had a direct link to our ceo who's a salesperson and as an engineer myself who like as you would expect in a big company you know should only focus on on technology given that we were a small team i actually had a first hand experience also of how you know the sales team were doing and you know what's the impact of our the, the things that we build in, in the engineering team what are the impacts that that it brings to the, the the you know sales process and all that? So building things that you know, weren't perfect, but things that work and iterating and really just trying to fail fast and build fast was sort of like the the mindset. So we yeah like in a span of six months, I probably wrote like you know hundreds of thousands of lines of code and sort of like that changed my perspective. Like you don't need to like bring the most perfect product just. Go build something that people want, and eventually, you know, you learn from that. So, I guess that that's was the. That's a great thing. thing. You, have, you, want to, you want to put people's minds right, especially mm-hmm. the, the the thing. Like for me, Francis, why I, I enjoy this is because 
I came from the multinational background, from a marketing background where but you've got to be make it perfect almost when you get it out into the market for the first time mm-hmm. around. And if you fail, you're out. Eh? But here it's a it's a totally different type of mentality really when it comes to startup. And I'm realizing that right now. Sometimes you just gotta get the product out, then iterate mm-hmm. while the while it's out in the market. Do your A B testing in the market to see it because you never know which product feature people will like the most about your product exactly. once it's mm-hmm. out. Exactly. You know, there was like I guess if I could tell a story, like there was one night now we were we had all like a particular assumption and a feature. Like we were all convinced that was going to work. And eventually the, one of the customers is Dropbox and they eventually, they called one night and said, look, we didn't need this. What we asked was this, like this one's really not useful for our flow. So you had to change everything. So like overnight, like we, we had to like learn from that experience and build a product that fits the demand of the users. So like things like those, but uh, it, it would have been harder like for a multinational like, to do that in two weeks. So like, I think a fast-growing startup has to reinvent itself continuously. I see. So that was the key takeaway from, from, uh, mm-hmm. from the company. You came back and you wanted to develop a, a, a politically, an app that would do social analytics to analyze politics, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Tell us a bit what happened there. Yeah. So... Um, that's actually how I met uh, one of my co-founders, Edwin Desherda, who um, was the spokesperson for President Aquino, was involved in the 2016 campaign of uh, Mar Rojas. Mm-hmm. And we had this you know, big question of how can we monitor the change of behavior of people in social media so we can determine certain patterns and trends that might influence elections? So sort and of like I, you're... you're, you're Cambridge Analytica, uh, <laughs> my, minus the minus having Facebook behind you. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, that was sort of like the thinking. Um, if Cambridge Analytica was sold to the Republicans, we're thinking like, okay, we're the other side. Um, okay. But but you know, technology is agnostic in many ways. But and 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 I guess uh, the the goal there was how do you build a platform that we can sell to politicians here? That was the initial intention. We did that for two years, really like, you know, connecting to social media, Facebook, Twitter, analyzing Filipino behavior. We could actually determine what you call in uh, psychology, the ocean profile. How open are you? How consensuous? How extrovert? How uh, agreeable or how neurotic you are as a person? By Not even by talking to you, by just going through your social media profile. Yeah, Yeah, uh, we can determine your leaning. Are you liberal? Are you conservative are you gay are you straight or like those things can be we can actually know you better than you know yourself that was like the entire pitch i would say like you know the the tech was sound the business however was highly cerebral so it's a it's a product that's you know in theory sounds good but in practice how do you apply it how do Mm -hmm. politicians use that to campaign how how can that change elections so and, and you know, we were talking. It's it's really the, for me as a businessman. It's the cash flow, right? I mean, exactly. How, how can you how can you make sure that the cash flow comes in continuously because it's only used during the election time? When you're gonna have a long drought until the app is used, until, until they will require require your services mm-hmm. again, unless you sell it to other countries who might have the same need. Right? Exactly. Yes, and and we actually did test it with uh, not only in the Philippines but some um, midterm uh, congressional districts in the U.S. Um, it did work. Uh, but but yeah, like you know, it was a highly cerebral product. So there, I learned that you know there should also be a strong synergy between business and technology because you can build the greatest app in the world, but if you can't sell it, 
there's really no business to build around it also. So there's you have to strike a strong balance between the two. So we did that for two years and you know learned a lot, and that's how we built our initial team at Paymongo from there. Okay. Really great story. I mean, how, how we got from there to here, right? I mean, nice story everywhere, everywhere until you got to Paymongo. What is the key thing you picked up from your political app that you were able to reapply? The key takeaway for Paymongo? What did you learn from there? I would say like the thing that we brought to Paymongo, like the learnings, like I would say that the team was the, the greatest, the team is always the greatest assets you, you, asset you have in, in your company. And for me, even though the entire idea failed, doing that for two years, we were able to build, I would say, like a really strong engineering team. Our process was, uh, you know, we built a process and our relationship. And that's how we were able to roll out PayMongo as, you know, as fast as we did, primarily because we had a head start. Um, so I would say that was the greatest takeaway I, I got there. So I guess that the speed to develop PayMongo was not something that the speed to create PayMongo did not come from Paymongo itself, but rather from the years of training from, from exactly. Amsterdam to, to your political trade to the political mm. app. It was something that you learned over time and, and you exactly. can use that there. Importante ang mag-save, pero bakit marami ang walang ipon? The answer is because we don't spend enough time in learning practical financial strategies. This is Fitz Villafuerte, a registered financial planner, and I'm inviting you to listen to the 80% podcast kung saan tuturuan ko kayo kung paano yumaman. So join me and let's talk about personal finance on The 80% Podcast. Hi, this is Michael Waits and I'm the host of The Age of Tech Podcast. Join me as I interview tech thought leaders, investors, and business founders across Asia to get the best insights on how they built their businesses from the ground up. Check out my new episodes every Wednesday at asiatechpodcast.com. All things Asia, all things tech. I'm Stanley Chi from The Underpaid Podcast. We talk about work-related topics na parang nagchichismisa lang sa pantry. It's a pro-employee podcast na relatable sa lahat ng nag-opisina, pumapasok man, petics, o work from home. Listen and subscribe to The Underpaid Podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. Kita-kits, mga immortal. How did you figure out that PayMongo was a thing that you wanted to do? What was the pain point that all of a sudden that you could see that, that give birth to Paymongo? Yeah, no. Uh, I would say, I guess, uh, the, the short answer is that it, it wasn't like uh, an idea we got, like a eureka moment overnight. I think you know, when people tell you like the backstory, it's always like, you know, that, that, that flowery thing. Um, it wasn't the case. Um, so we, we, after we did um, that, you know, social analytics idea, we, we tried different things before Paymongo. So at that time, it, what I realized was we had an engineering team Maybe be- while we're out of ideas, maybe we could sell our services. So we tried to build a software consulting company, actually. And, and uh, I guess uh, also, I guess at the time, we were also naive enough to think that we could easily sell to big multinationals. I realized sales cycles are hard. So eventually, trying to do it for about six months, we, mm-hmm. we were about to run out of money. So we had like $2,000 in the bank. And we had to pay you know, salaries and all that. So... That was like, yeah, like at that time, out of necessity, I guess, out of desperation also, we had to think of ideas that would work. And Paymong wasn't the first one, actually. Like the first idea we thought of, I don't know if you, at that time, there was this uh, bill in Congress, and I think it was just signed at the time, mm-hmm. that, that, that allows you to move your phone number from 
network to network. So if you're a globe, you can go to smart or smart to globe without losing your phone number, uh, which is true in many other countries, but some unique, you know, some new thing in the Philippines. So, um, and I think that's the government's way to introduce a third telco, I think. But in any case, we, we tried to, you know, build a platform that could allow telcos, like we would, we were planning to sell to telcos that, you know, how can we lower the cost of moving those? There's a lot of technical complexities around that. And, you know, we tried it. It's also still hard to sell to these multi, it is big companies. Um, so, you know, we tried different things in between that. And then eventually, um, the key takeaway for us was, look, you know, we can build software. I mean, that was a given. But also, it was really hard for us to launch any business online, primarily because, you know, like the payment part was hard. When we tried other startups before, we always were, we always incorporated in the US so that, you know, we could use services like Stripe and, and other services that were readily available in the US. But here, payments is painful, like crazy painful. Like talking to old financial institutions, it's just, you know, it's it's something you probably wouldn't want to go through yourself. So, you know, as as software engineers, we felt that, look, we have background. We understand the complexities of finance. Although we weren't finance people, I guess we can we can bring tech to that. And, you know, in March of 2019, we just went ahead. We drove up to Baguio to brainstorm and, and uh, yeah, like wrote our first few lines of code that we eventually launched three months later. Why is it called PayMongo? Good question. Uh, well, the, the official, well, the story, the official story is, you know, Mongo is for growth and fast growth and we help businesses grow. We're a business that helps other businesses grow. So that's, you know, the, the story of PayMongo. I guess the real story is uh, we needed a .com domain. That was like the non-negotiable, but we also didn't have them have the money to buy like expensive domains. So I was like one night scouting every night monitoring what a good domain would come out. And eventually it was like, oh, paymongo.com was available. And, you know, let's come up with a story. Let's buy it and, you know, spend $10 for it. So <laughs> I know I know where you're coming from. So that's <laughs> I can empathize with your story. And then, so you were in Baguio. You, you said that you came up with, you you had this, this Eureka, not, not really Eureka mode, but there was a pain point in working with these old institutions and you wrote some code. So what is this first code that you developed? What was the first pain point that you were trying to address initially when you came up with it for those first few lines of code? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the you know, PayMongo solves a lot of pain points. But the first version of it really was if you're going to work with financial providers, you know, let's let's assume that you've gone through all the um, hard processes that, you know, documentation and all the negotiation and all the sales cycle that would probably take take you three months. Once you're done with that, you're you're basically, uh, you're on your own to build the payment experience you want. And the reality is, if you're trying to sell something online, if you're starting a business, essentially, whatever it is that you do best, like if you have a bad payment experience, it's, it affects the entire experience of your business. So for us, we felt that like having like fragmented experience from payment channels to payment channels and you know like all the technology is so hard to integrate. Like one of the providers have this like 70-page documentation in order just to put a you know a checkout form. So for us, like 
you know, this is 2020. It should be the thing of the past and it should be easy for you to launch a checkout form. So that was like the basic idea. So that was like the first thing we actually really uh, spent time on. And then eventually it grew. Now we want to have a seamless onboarding payouts and all that. So it's still growing until now, but that was like the the first thing we ever, ever wrote our uh, code on. Okay. So you wrote this code and it was intended to improve, I guess, the financial experience when working with big traditional financial institutions, legacy institutions, as you call them. Hmm. How were you able to get the support of Y Combinator for your business, Paymongo, especially since it was probably just dealing with what I would assume to be just a problem in, in the Philippines or maybe other developing countries with legacy systems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we applied to Y Combinator in uh, mid-March of 2019. So that was about the time we were starting out. So we actually applied with nothing. So we had no you code the idea and you just applied. Yeah, just the idea and basically the, the, the vision, essentially, you know, the, the ambitious goal. So they, so yeah, when, when we wrote our application and I made my one-minute pitch, it was all about, hey, we have this great ambition that everything is lined up. You have the perfect team. The market is ready. The problem is there. And, and we had proof. We had social proof for that. Even though we had no product, we tried to create a, a waitlist system that sort of like told the story that, you know, 800 people were waiting for this product that actually did not exist yet. So like all of that, like, you know, I, we sold the story to Y Combinator that, look, it's the right time. It's the right market. It's the right team. The messaging was, if you don't get on board now, you're not going to get on board later because we're going to freaking launch this thing. It was like, you know, the entire, you know, of course, they didn't know that we were running out of money, but we also needed to show that we were building this. So we did apply. That was March. And we, you know, we relentlessly coded and coded and built the thing. And then we heard back from them around April, mid-April. We had a quick video interview. And then they invited us to fly to Mountview to meet in person. And, and yeah, I guess we convinced them. And, and Y Combinator's thesis also was, if you fund companies that help other companies to grow, it eventually, you know, helps the entire economy to to grow also and, you know, help move more people to the digital economy, which eventually will make a healthy startup scene. Yeah. So when, you, when you're able to get, uh, you convince Y Combinator to invest in your business, just how much exactly did they invest? Did they also put in tech resources? What else did they provide for you to be able to start growing Paymongo? Yeah, so we, so their investment is standard. So they invested... In our batch, they invested $150,000 in exchange for 7% of the company post-money valuation. So that's around $2 million post-money. And you know, considering that we had nothing, so that was like, okay, yeah, we'll take the deal. And we we flew to California, spent three months there. And you know, we, we had weekly dinners. And what the dinners would, what happens at those dinners would be, they invite, you know, those big successful I mean, I, entrepreneurs. Oh. Yeah. So you know the the guys at Airbnb, and you actually get to talk to them because the network is so huge and also like really prestigious that you can get to connect. So that allowed us to also navigate through the complex investor uh, network in the valley. Wow. So after you were done, you came back over here. You you learned the stuff. You came back over here. What's the basic elevator pitch for people who who don't really understand what Paymongo does? Let's mm-hmm. say. I was going to explain to, to my dad, who's not really a techie, 
-hmm. What exactly is PayMongo? Yeah, so the short pitch about PayMongo is PayMongo is an online payments uh, processing software service that enables businesses to receive payments over the internet through any payment options. So we, we enable you to accept credit cards, e-wallets, and other alternative payments uh, in just a matter of minutes, hours, or days. Basically, just easily. So you don't have to go through all the, the complex process of setting up payments. So in other words, for example, just so it's very clear for people, if there was, the, if there was no PayMongo, this is what you would have done. Now that there's this, there, there, there is PayMongo, this is how it's done now. And this, this is why mm -hmm. it's much easier. Can you, can you explain that one for people? Right. So before, um, before PayMongo, if you want to launch a business online, and of course, all businesses need to get paid, whether you're just starting out or you're a big corporation, you need to have a means for accepting payments. And your customers demand many things. They want to pay cash. They want to pay credit. And they want to be, pay e-wallets and all that. So for you to launch a successful payment acceptance in your platform, you'd have to do that one by one and negotiate with all these providers. And that takes a long time, like if not you know weeks, months. Um, for us, you simply sign up to pay Mongo, go through our simple KYC process. If everything is KYC meaning know, know your know your know your client process, right? Okay. Yes. So you know we have to know you that you're legitimate and the business legitimate. If everything is set, the onboarding should only take around a day or two. You know, it could take a little longer, uh, but still faster than a competitor if we have some clarifications to do. But after that, once you're onboarded, like the tools are ready for you to use. You can accept GCash, you can accept credit card. Like really, you don't have to worry about all the complex, you know, processes underneath. Just integrate, whether through an API, Shopify, uh, or other plugins, or if you don't have any website, like you're on Facebook or Instagram, just use our links product like you could just send links to people it's as if like it's an invoice or a checkout form that they could just click and pay so in other words what happened here is that before i had to apply to get accredited with a credit card company mm -hmm. i would have to apply for whatever whatever be able to accept payments in different forms mm -hmm. all i just have to do is now just accept paymongo and paymongo will take care of talking to all those different uh, uh payment providers and you process the payments i can i just get it through paymongo that's right mm -hmm. right Exactly, as simple as that. So it's it's a one-stop shop which you actually created. And tell mm -hmm. me about the the, the take-up of, of PayMongo since you started up in 2019 and where it is today. How just how big have you grown the market? Yeah, um, you know the growth has been crazy, and you know I I always uh, remind the team how we started. So when we launched in June of 2019, that was our first week, yeah, first or second week of Y Combinator. We launched with ten merchants and these were mostly our friends and families who probably couldn't say no to us um <laughs> so they they signed up and we didn't even have like a, a nice sign up form like we were manually like entering their emails and their password it was so unsecure at the, at the beginning but you know we needed to have the product out so so we, we signed up with 10 merchants and in the entire month of june we only processed a hundred thousand pesos so that's you know about two thousand dollars yeah so it's like we were so happy at the time like look we we process 100,000 pesos um we 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 probably didn't make any good profit there of course not cuz you know the, the cost was still high but but yeah so from there you know we grew from 10 to eventually around 900 by the end of Y combinator so by the end of 3 months we had 900 merchants and now i couldn't even keep track of how many more merchants we onboard every day and 
from you know from processing just 100,000 pesos in June, we now process like hundreds of millions of pesos today. And that's growing, you know, like in two digit numbers every every month. So wow. like for us, you know, we don't look at it like what is now what it could be in the future because then we were happy with 100,000. Now we're so happy with hundreds of millions and like our aim is to make it a billion or 10 billion. Like they're just really aiming and keeping it growing. Tell, tell me a bit more. How did, I'm sure that this pandemic, I mean, intuitively, it sort of accelerated what you what you did. But tell me how you were able to handle that one. What happened What what, what happened in the pandemic and how did you guys both adjust from a client side? What, what were the clients mm-hmm. doing? How did they find you? And also, what did you have to adjust internally? I'm sure that, you know, the demand that, that, sud- that said increase was something that you also did not expect. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we. I mean, I don't think anybody expected the pandemic, but you know, there's there's something about timing. We 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 you know we sit down with my co-founders and we we say that you know had the pandemic happened earlier, we probably wouldn't be able to handle the growth. Had it also happened later, parang you know it would have been a different story. I mean, of course, you know, all good intentions aside, the pandemic really accelerated the growth for the company. Overnight, businesses needed to have a solution to go online because you know existing alternatives are no longer um, viable. Mm-hmm. So, because the platform and yeah, the the core of the platform is self service payment setup. That's like our entire thesis. So, any business, big or small, you should be able to go to the platform, sign up, activate, and get your payments. Because of that, our overhead was low. We really didn't have any complex sales cycle. You could either talk to our team or not, up to you. Okay. Anybody could set up. Like one of the schools here, um, St. Paul's, signed up to us without even talking to us. We were surprised that we had like a, a big school, you know, processing tuition uh, in, in, you know, during the oh. opening classes. So any business, whether you're big or small. So that's, I guess, the value proposition amplified during the pandemic because Nobody could go out. Nobody could be, you know, have papers signed or have all those complex processes done. So, like, our solution was, like, at the right moment, at the right junction to serve the market. Okay, then. So, tell me, right, right now, I, you, you, you're saying that you cannot keep track of the number of, of clients you've onboarded already right now. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we onboard, like, hundreds and hundreds every week. You new clients, and they all sign up. And we have thousands. I think the last number I, I had when I checked was, like, around... 7,000 activated merchants uh, and still people are, you know, continuously activating and more, there are more sign up than activations. So activations is when you complete your KYC, but people do sign up and then they KYC at some later point. So that's sort of the process. And how did your team cope with that one? I mean, that was, that's, that's like a shock to the system. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been a crazy. We, we, you know, initially when we were, we raised our seed round, um, we said that we're going to grow to, Around thirty people in uh, in about in in around that you know in a year's time, we we exceeded the target. Like we're now fifty. We we kept hiring during the the lockdown because you know more demands. You know we had to f- fight fires also. That was expected. It's part of growth. And yeah, it's, it's like the team has been amazing. I would say like I I I don't even know every little thing that happens now, but you know it's like we make miracles every day. Um, that's how I would describe it. And talking about making miracles, finally, tell us a bit more about, okay, you guys scored 12 million US dollars from Stripe, which is, I think, mm-hmm. the, the major startup enabler. Tell us a bit more. Because, you know, learning about the startup community for the first time, what exactly mm-hmm. does it mean when you got Series A funding? And, mm-hmm. and who is Stripe? And, and why are they such <laughs> a prominent startup enabler? 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. I, I guess like we can take a step back and like I guess bring it back to the story of the seed because that's how everything started. Also, okay. so okay. we we raised a seed round in September that was two point seven million dollars. I'm like way over our initial target actually, but there was like really a lot of interest in 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 the community. I would say arguably, I think it's probably among the largest seed round that was ever raised for any Philippine startup. And that was when Stripe like first like partnered with us as an investor. We we knew them before. This is still Y Combinator, is that right? It was yeah, after after like parang three weeks after Y Combinator. Three weeks after Y Combinator, there was what you call a seed round, right? Yes. And so this after you got 150,000 US dollars from Y Combinator, there were other mm-hmm. investors who wanted to come in. And these are what yes. you call the, the seed round. What the Correct. seed round be for people who are first timers in, in, um, in, in this? Yeah. In this. So seed round, you usually raise. So again, there's really no hard definition, but seed round is usually when you raise a little bit of money to test out your idea. So you may or may not have a product market fit yet, but you need initial funding to build something out. So that was that was the goal of the seed round. We were oversubscribed actually, but we were really excited to onboard our investors. We had Peter Thiel and Founders Fund. So Peter Thiel co-founded PayPal uh, with Elon uh, back then. And and yeah, so that's it's sort of like how we all started with this network of investors we you know we partnered with and and Stripe, we knew them before that. Stripe is this $35 billion payments company. We sort of like so, you know, we do similar things in many ways. They they pioneered online payments also in the US mm-hmm. back in 2010. The, the the founder Patrick is actually an MIT alum also. That's how I knew about Stripe because he was a senior when I was I think he was a senior when I was a freshman. But, like we we overlapped in some way. Of course, I didn't know him personally, but like we heard about how they started, so we took inspiration from that. So yeah, so that's how we started the seed round, and in fact, like that was like a and more than enough runway for us like to operate the company for you know 18 months or even a bit longer than that and okay. we we initially planned to do our series a early next year 2021 or even towards the mid of 2021 okay and, when you step back a bit for those who are also not too familiar what does it mean when you start to go into series a yeah so the series a yeah so series a is usually i guess you're among the first official rounds of financing so that's when you raise investor or VC money to grow your um, company further. So that's when you find a, I guess, a good product market fit, and then you want to grow that and accelerate. So okay. typically, I guess, in the analogy there is, you know, you you seed round was you have you had a blueprint for a house. Series A is when you've built these skeletons, and then you need to put on the roof. That's why you need to raise money and and all that. So, so that's, I guess, like. We found product market fit, and the the pandemic accelerated our growth. So that's when you know our our volumes were like fifteen x since January. And we, I guess, thinking about all the feedback and all the things that we could build, we decided that it's you know the right time for us to accelerate it. That means invest more in our team, uh, invest in aggressively growing our product. Also, so that was the entire, uh, I guess background of why we ended up also uh, doing our financing earlier than, than planned. And do they, do you approach them saying this is our plan or do they approach you for the Series A financing? Yeah, uh, you know, this is a, I guess this is a good opportunity for me to share also some of my learnings and insights on you know, how 
like I guess some of the misconceptions I had before also when when, when it comes to fundraising and before I thought na when when you race you know, this round like you know let's say your seed round and your series A and your series B and before my thinking was you know as the job of the CEO is you know to raise money but also like to just start fundraising go back to the company start fundraising again it's sort of the distinct points and the reality really is fundraising is never a distinct point in in the life cycle of your company and uh-huh. for me what i learned coming out of yc is it's a continuous relationship building just like you know before you marry someone you, you need to go on a date right several times and in fact if not years so that's sort of how you build relationship with investors so like there's not a distinct line between seed and series a for us so for me like after uh, the seed round it was a continuous re- you know conversation with the investors updating them trying to build that relationship and then really until it's such a point that you work with them and then you figure out look now's the right i think now's the right time to actually accelerate this thing okay you know maybe we can put together um you know a, a funding round that makes sense so that was sort of the story and it, it, it built it, we built this relationship with these investors like over that entire year since we raised our initial round wow and so they all came in because you you were actually you were in a working relationship with them and they mm-hmm. you were able to tell them i guess the relationship was open enough for you to tell them okay we need money right now what is your plan you said you want to bring a total the best payment experience here for the Filipinos. What is next, given that you've got sort of like a larger runway now to create that ideal uh, consumer experience? Yeah, uh, we have this, you know, endless requests for products and features. And the way we see Paymongo and how we separate ourselves from our competitors really is that we want to build a digital economic infrastructure. That's the mission of the company. Payments is an enabler for us to get there. So what that means is businesses need, one, they need to get paid. So that's why we want to build a really good payments platform. And we're barely scratching the surface there. And you know our, our goal over the next year or two is to um, improve our payment products. So what that means is how do you make a consistent checkout experience? So any business, whether you're just starting out, should have a really seamless checkout experience that will please their customers. That will, you know, enable more transactions. We want to support more business models. So business models for subscriptions. If you want to have recurring payments, there are businesses that need invoicing. There are businesses that need, you know, installments. So like there are a lot of permutations when it comes to payments. There's not a single thing that, that describes payments. And we want to invest in that. But also like we want to invest on the long-term infrastructure. What that means is, should we explore um, additional licenses from the government to um, build like on different financial stack? Like, you know, does, uh, do we need a license in order to hold balances for our merchants? Can we issue cards so that they can access their payouts easily? Like there's really a lot of things in mind. And so you know, think a lot, a lot larger now. The, the, the money yeah. gives you more time to explore where you're taking it. So what PayMongo does basically is allows you to onboard easily. So this is, a version of an account that I have that has not been activated. So the idea is when, when you want to avail of PayMongo services, it should should be easy for you to sign up. So here, our entire onboarding process is done online. So there's no calls needed. There's no in-person meetups or even Zoom calls. You should be able to enter all your information, all your business information, 
oops, I, I need a government ID here apparently. But in any case, like you should be able to like go through the entire verification process online. And the nice thing about what we're doing also is we enable you, even before you get activated, you're actually able to test out the platform. So be, you know, before with other providers, you need to go through all the process first before you even get to try everything. So here, even if you don't have a fully activated account with us, you know, you can create things like links. So links is when you need to just issue like quick invoices to your customers. So let's say, you know, RJ wants to buy a shoes, like, you know, shoes for RJ. I can basically just create a, a, a checkout form, essentially. So a quick link. So I can give this to RJ. And then when I click this, this provides a, you know, a, what do you call that? Like a, a pre a pre-built checkout form here. So RJ can then, you know, select pay by credit card and enter his information without the merchant doing anything other than setting up the link. So that's that's how we make things quick and easy for, for small merchants. For the bigger ones, you know, they want to create an API so they can use our API keys, read our documentation. Back for those who don't understand what API means, what exactly is an API? Yes, so an API uh, is an ability for you to connect our platform to your system. So your systems can be anything, and our API is sort of the bridge to that. So if you have developers in-house, you can you know uh, go through our documentation, read all the instructions. Um, we have like, you know, how do you integrate with Shopify, for example? So we give you a step-by-step process so that you can launch in the same day uh, with your Shopify shop, for example. So like, there's a lot of other options um, that you know you can get to the platform. You can also monitor all the payments. In this case, I don't have any yet, but you can also like manage your payout. So if we can pay out to any bank, so in this case, um, I need to activate first for this account apparently. But in this case, you know, we pay out to any bank in in the country, like wow. any major bank. So you don't have to create another account. Some providers require you to move to another bank. So really. Like we make it seamless so that we don't disrupt any of your process by signing up. I see. And so looking at all this one, what's really next? Where do you see taking this company in the next five years? Uh, I mean, you already got your, 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 your international investors. You're still technically a privately held company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the opportunity to, to, I don't know, maybe there are other countries which might need this as well. Do you plan to IPO this in the Philippines? <laughs> what's your next plan for the next five years for, for Paymongo? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Our, our grand vision really is we want this to be a Southeast Asian play. But we're starting in the Philippines because, of course, one, we're Filipinos, we're familiar with the market. But when you look at the Philippines, we're, we're, we're in our digital infrastructure, we're, we're lagging behind with our neighbors. Uh, most investments go to you know the much bigger country of Indonesia. But for us, we, like, we want to be an enabler for the growth of the entire ecosystem. So if we have a platform that enables other businesses, we believe that we can altogether grow the entire you know, digital economy. So, you know, we want to focus on the Philippines, um, you know, within the next year, of course. But, you know, we are setting our eyes in like similar markets in the region. Um, we're still 1% done of what we can do. So, you know, the team really has a, has a much bigger mission in mind. So um, I think it will be another you know, three to five years for us to build this entire thing. Francis, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation, <laughs> beginning from your, your high school in Leyte, the living doing your going to MIT to living in Amsterdam enjoying all the coffee shops over there I presume <laughs> from there going back into the Philippines working on a political app that never pushed through then finally getting to pay Mongo getting your investors from Y Combinator 
and and also getting your seed round and your money for the the the, the series A round. I mean, taking that all in right now. I mean, this is this is. I mean, if you think about it, this, this is like the little boy from Leyte who did good, right? <laughs> what what if you were to synthesize everything right now? What what would you like people who are listening to here? Future entrepreneurs, people who, who who failed in the past, people who are just trying to get out of this crisis right now, trying to mm-hmm. figure out what to do. What's that message that you want to, to send to them right now? I, I think the message, and which is apt also given you know the challenging times, the like difficult times give rise to innovation. What that means is it's really time to build whatever idea you have, whatever resources uh, or limited ones that you have right now. You know, they're like just. Um, pure passion and just relentless pursuit for you know continuous change will allow you to you know build that thing that will eventually you know bring you somewhere, right? And I tell this because you know, I, I grew up less privileged and and the mindset that my parents really like brought me up was the idea that whatever resources we have, just take advantage of it and you know keep continue learning and learning and eventually at some point maybe when when everything. Uh, falls into place, you'll get somewhere. So, yeah, and I, I think it couldn't be more appropriate that now with challenging times, that difficult times really bring about the the, the entrepreneur in you. And yeah, it's really time to build for everyone. Well, Francis, thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much for sharing your entrepreneurial journey with the rest of us. I'm sure that many people really benefited from this one. And uh, we are with you on the road towards your success. And you know what? Um, Hopefully, we got more entrepreneurs out there looking to sign up on PayMongo and be part of the entire PayMongo system. So again, Francis, thanks so much for guesting on the show. Again, this Thank has you. been the RJ Ledesma podcast. Please do join us again next week. In the meantime, if there's a business personality or entrepreneur that you'd like me to interview here on the podcast, please let me know. Drop me a message again. My name is RJ Ledesma. Thanks so much and have a great evening. Thank you so much, Francis. Thank you. Thanks, RJ. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.